Good morning. My name is Devin Kahn. I'm an assistant pastor and I oversee the student ministry here at Highlands and just want to extend my welcome and Merry Christmas. This morning we'll be in the passage of Luke, Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, there's also a few Bibles underneath you if you did not bring one. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14 is the, the text we'll be looking at this morning. As you turn there, let me just set the context slightly. Uh, in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord has been busy. First, the angel Gabriel visits Elizabeth and tells her and Zechariah that they will be with child and his name will be John. And John will prepare the way for Jesus. Next, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, visits Mary. And Gabriel tells her that though she is a virgin, her and Joseph will be with child, and his name will be Jesus. And so here in our text, the angel of the Lord is about to make another visit, and this time to some shepherds. Let's read now Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray and we'll begin. Lord, would you press upon our hearts the truth of your word. We need you. We need you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. What will you be doing this Christmas? There's lots of ways you could answer that question. Since it's a time of year filled with much eating, drinking, socializing, gathering, traveling, buying, giving, receiving, singing, reading, watching, remembering, mourning, crying, what will you be doing this Christmas? I have really good news for you this morning. News that ought to cause great excitement, great thankfulness, and great love. It's the same good news that the angel delivered to the shepherds that night. Jesus 
is born the Savior. That's the good news. Jesus is born the Savior. And if that news, if, if that news is grasped, then great rejoicing will ensue. But the problem, of course, is that instead of rejoicing, Christians are often yawning at this good news. Because, after all, it's old news. The old news has become dull to our ears and to our hearts. This news that Jesus is born, the Savior, easily gets stripped of its true meaning and leaves us with just a sweet, superficial sentiment. So the question I want to focus on this morning is, will you be rejoicing this Christmas? Will you be rejoicing this Christmas? Now the level to which you can answer yes to that question, the level to which you will rejoice this Christmas is proportionate to the level that you can intimately know the following truths. Because after all, there is great truth behind that good news. Jesus is born the Savior. So if you're able to rejoice this Christmas, it's because you have grasped the truth behind that good news. The good news is Jesus is born the Savior. And the question is, will you be rejoicing this Christmas? And so if you are going to rejoice this Christmas... There's three truths you have to grasp. Here they are. First, we are born in need of saving. Second, Jesus is born the son of David. And third, Jesus is born to settle the wrath of God. So let's look at that first truth and unpack it. We are born in need of saving. Let's read again the shepherd's reaction in verse 8. This is verses 8 through 10 of our passage. This is the shepherd's reaction to the angel coming. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. See, the shepherd's reaction here was a good one. It was not because of a lack of faith. It was because they were terrified was what was about to happen next. You see, they knew, just like all of us should know, that when you come in, the, in face-to-face with the glory of God, only judgment can come next. Because who can stand before the Almighty? Who, who can stand before our, our holy God? Who can ascend that hill? Nobody. And the shepherds, though they were devout men, knew... That when the angel of the Lord comes, usually death comes with him. We see that over and over again in the Old Testament. And so when the angel shows up, the shepherds had a good reaction. A reaction that wasn't, hmm, I wonder why the angel is visiting us. Certainly there's some evil men that way that you need to destroy. No, they had the proper reaction of, oh no, it's time. It's my time. It's our time. I knew this day was coming. It's happening right now. And so clearly, they had a good response. A a look of terror is appropriate when coming to grips with the glory of God. But somehow, 
somehow the news Jesus is born the Savior has somehow gotten separated. Separated out from the fact that we are badly and desperately need of being saved. Somehow we've separated the two. It's the same reaction of Mary when the angel showed up. She was filled with fear. Same reaction as Elizabeth. She was filled with fear. Because they all knew, like we should know, when we are in the presence of God, we should be rightly terrified. Because who is righteous among us? Nobody. Only God. But somehow, this good news of Jesus is born the Savior has gotten detached, disconnected from the fact that we are in need of saving. Let me give you an example. I've received many Christmas cards this year. Beautiful Christmas cards. A lot from you. Thank you. Have them up on my refrigerator. And I've received many Christmas cards, and even some of them will say something like, Jesus is born the Savior. There is good news. And that is awesome. However, I have never gotten a Christmas card that also says, we are all lost and dead in sin and deserving of destruction. (laughs) But do not fear, Jesus is born the Savior. See, if you detach the first part, and you're only left with the second part, in our minds, we can translate that to just a, a nice, sweet sentiment around Christmas time that makes us a little warm and fuzzy on the inside. There's a quote by Randy Alcorn uh, where he compares himself, and this is a pastor, by the way, pastor in a church in Atlanta. He, he compares himself to a child molester and a murderer named Dodd. He uses this radical il- illustration to explain the difference between sinful man and a holy God. Here's what he says. This is him talking. I'd imagine the distance between Dodd, the murderer and child molester, I'd imagine the distance between Dodd and me as the difference between the South and North Poles. Okay, I'm tracking with you so far. But when you consider God's viewpoint from light years away, that distance is negligible. In my standing before a holy God, apart from Christ, I am Dodd. Unless we come to grips with the fact that we're of precisely the same stock, fallen humanity, as Dodd and Hitler and Stalin, we will never truly rejoice over the good news. Jesus is born the Savior. If you want, you can use that quote on your Christmas card next year. (laughs) Merry Christmas, the Kahn family. The point is not that you have to put that quote or a similar quote on next year's Christmas card. The point is not that we just, as Presbyterians, love to talk about doom and gloom and sin. The point is that we love talking about God's love. The point is that we want to rejoice in God the Savior. 
And to rejoice in the height, the depth, the width, and the length of God's love, you have to face reality. I have to face reality. We must never separate God's love from who it is directed at. Undeserved sinners. So how will this reality set in? This reality that we all are undeserved sinners. Because after all, facing reality is not our forte. That's why Netflix is so great. How are we going to deal with reality that we all are undeserved sinners? God did give us a way, you know, to face reality. He provided a way. The scriptures. If we want to be rejoicing this Christmas, we will need to face the reality about ourselves. We will need to face the reality that despite even our best efforts to do good and be good, we will fall short, so far short, of God's holy standard. God's holiness is revealed in scriptures. The fallenness of humanity is revealed in scriptures. Scripture reading and meditating is not just something that good Christians to do because it's good. It's a way to deal with reality. And when we face the reality, that reality will turn into rejoicing. Rejoicing over the fact that God's love is for undeserved sinners like you and for me. And it's that reality which will turn into rejoicing as we not only know that we are born in need of saving, but secondly, we need to know that Jesus is born the Messiah, the Son of David. That Jesus is born the Son of David. Look at verse 4 again. Chapter 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now skip down to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ is a way of translating Messiah. So Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. But, but what are all these references to David? I just read you at least three references to David. And if you read Luke chapter 1, every mention of Jesus coming, there's also a mention of David and how Jesus is related to, J- to, to David. Why so many references to David? Now, we could easily understand that if David was Jesus' father. Here comes Jesus, son of David. That makes sense. But he's not. David is not Jesus' dad. David, in fact, is removed by Jesus by about a thousand years. So why all these references to David? Can you imagine explaining to one of your friends, Oh, you know Charles, right? No? Oh. Well, you know Richard, right? He's related to Charles. Who's Richard? Oh, he lived in the 11th century. Now you should know who Charles is. You're like, huh? What? No, you don't go back a thousand years to identify and show him who he's related to. 
But here, there's a focus, an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the son of David. And that's because of 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we read earlier in the service. So I won't read it again. But if you want, you can go in your bulletin, and some of that passage is laid out for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's where David, it's where God promises David, King David, that his throne will last forever. That one of his sons will be finally put on the throne, and finally we will have a king that will rule in grace and in truth forever. His kingdom will be established forever. That's why there's such an emphasis in Luke and in other gospels that that Jesus is related to David because now we have the Messiah. We have the one prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament of the anointed one, the king, the one who will come and right the wrong, the one who will come and be better than any other king before him. So that's why there's such an emphasis that Jesus is the son of David. Do you know where the first gospel announcement is in the Bible? Where would you think the first gospel announcement is in the Bible? Some would say, we have it right here, Luke chapter 2. But it's not. Some might say 2 Samuel chapter 7. For behold, I will give you a son, King David, and he will rule on the throne. But it's not. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell, after they chose themselves over God, they sinned, they broke the covenant. And of course, because you break the covenant of God, you get the curses of God. That's in all the agreement. Nothing wrong with that. Broke, Broke the covenant, gets the curses. Adam and Eve and the serpent all get cursed. And it's in Genesis chapter 3 where the first announcement of the gospel is laid out for us. Not in full. We'll need the rest of the Old Testament. We'll need the New Testament to make sense of what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But here it is, the gospel. First announce where it says, God is saying to Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake, the devil. Nobody knew when or how, but she would have a child to put things right. We know it wasn't Adam. He proved himself. We know what he was capable of. We know that going forward, it wasn't Cain, it wasn't Noah, it wasn't Joseph, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't Joshua, and it wasn't David. Though these men had some good qualities and did some, and the Lord used the, these men in great were, were devout in a lot of ways, they were all snake-bitten, just like Adam. But from their line, would come the Messiah, the son of David, the anointed one, the Savior, Christ the Lord. One of my favorite books of 2018, not that it came out this year, but I read it this year, uh, was a book by Kevin DeYoung. And if you're not familiar, good author, great author, any of his books are good. Uh, Now you have to understand something first before I reveal this amazing book, uh, is that I'm an avid 
viewer of TV shows. And so the book has to be pretty captivating for me to get through it all. And this one was. This one was. Um, This is called uh, The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Yes, it is a children's book. Uh, And the intended audience is about 8 to 13. But I highly recommend it to read yourself or for your family. Uh, It is a great book, uh, and I'm going to read from it this morning. Um, And I think this captures a lot what I'm trying to say, that Jesus is born the son of David and why that's such a big deal. Um, So can can we get the electric fire up here? (laughs) Just kidding, Tom. All right. Here we go. God's people had a hard time not copying everyone else around them. This was especially true when it came to having a king. Although God warned them how bad kings could be, they just had to have one. So, eventually, God gave them a king. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. The first king was Saul. He was very impressive height-wise and pretty disappointing in every other way. The second monarch, young David from Bethlehem, was definitely much better. In fact, before we get to the king, there's almost no one more important than King David. When David wasn't busy sinning, which he did in some really big ways, he was a good, wise, merciful king. Many good things happened to God's people when David was in charge. They were victorious and prosperous and blessed. But the best thing that happened was what God promised would happen. God told David that he would always have a son to sit on the throne. He promised David an everlasting kingdom. This was good news for David and even better news for God's people. It meant that God had not forgotten the guarantee he made in the garden. See that? It's going back to the garden. There was a covenant made in the garden. Adam and Eve broke it. They got the curse, which was, you can't be in my presence anymore, Adam and Eve. I'm holy. You're clearly not. This will not work out. But God had not forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve, or to the following generations. That one day, he would make it possible for Adam and Eve to go back to the garden, for us to be back in God's presence. A deliverer was on his way, and now everyone who had ears to hear knew he would be a son of David. But the next son of David was not the one they were looking for. Solomon started off on the right foot, but he ended up tripping quite spectacularly. After Solomon, the kingdom split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Neither kingdom was very good. God punished Israel first, then Judah. In the course of 400 years, God's people would go from top dog to dog food. They had been kicked out of their promised land, just like Adam and Eve had been kicked out of their And worst of all, David's house and David's throne were no more. The future looked bleak especially for the promises of God. The next chapter is this scene we're looking at in this book. The next chapter is, but there is hope that God has not forgotten his promises, that there were shepherds and they were interrupted by the glory of the Lord saying, do not fear, the Savior is born. He will get you back into the presence of God. 
Yes, you got kicked out of the garden. Yes, you got kicked out of the promised land. But do not fear. Jesus Christ, son of David, will be born this day. So we must know we are born in need of of saving. We must know that, that Jesus is born the son of David. And lastly, we must know that Jesus is born to settle the wrath of God. Jesus is born to settle the wrath of God. Look at verses 11 through 14 again of Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those whom he is pleased. How in the world will sinners be pleasing in the sight of God? There's one way for them not to be sinners anymore. That's the only way. The only way God is going to look at you and be pleased if you, is if your sin is, is taken away from you. That's the only way. And if you remember Jesus, the Savior, born to settle the wrath of God, remember his baptism? He came down and God the Father said, who is it? This is my son whom I am well pleased with. You see, there was one person that pleased the Father, that pleased God, and his name is Jesus. Why? Because he was sinless. Why? Because he always loved the Father. Why? Because he always loved his neighbor. He fulfilled the covenant. And the only way God is going to look at you and me and be pleased is if we don't put our trust in ourselves, is we fully, 100% put our trust in what Christ did on our behalf. That's the only way. Jesus came down in order to make peace between God and us. So before we can experience peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, before we can experience that, we must first hear the announcement, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That's how we get there. It's the king. The newborn king gets us reconciled with God. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I'll read that again because it may be hard to follow at first. The Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus is born to settle the wrath of God and to make us a pleasing son just like Jesus. Jesus rids us of our sins by taking them on himself. We see that played out fully at the cross. And Jesus transfers his pleasing record of perfect righteousness to us. So if you don't see yourself, here's the problem. If you don't see yourself, if we don't see ourselves as lost, dead, and without hope, without Christ, then there won't be rejoicing this Christmas. There will be yawning. 
If you don't see yourselves as spiritually lost and dead without Christ, then there won't be rejoicing this Christmas. On July 24th, 2002, Randy Fogel went to work expecting an ordinary day at the office. Never mind that his office is a dark subterranean labyrinth 240 feet below the ground where the only lights come from the flickering helmet lamps and a mistake can cost you your life. Randy had been a coal miner for 20 years and he took such challenges in his stride. He had a reputation for toughness. Little did Randy know how his toughness was about to be tested to the limit. His ordinary day's work was interrupted at about 9 o'clock in the evening by a frantic voice over the radio, We hit water! Get out! Randy's fellow miners had accidentally drilled through into an adjacent flooded mine. The miners scrambled to escape, doubled over as they ran to avoid the low ceilings as millions of gallons of water came swirling and gushing around about their ankles. One team escaped. Randy's team did not. Cut off from their only exits by flooded corridors, the nine men found themselves trapped in a chamber only four feet deep and 18 feet wide, filled nearly to the top with frigid 55-degree water. These men had no shortage of strength or courage. They were fighters and survivors, hard men who faced danger on a daily basis. Randy had played football in high school. His brother recollected one time they'd been deer hunting, and Randy had opted not to wear gloves even though it was five below zero. That's the kind of man he was. If anyone could find a way out of this mess, it was Randy and his fellow miners. It didn't take long, however, for the terrible truth to become clear. Randy was helpless. As the minutes turned to hours and the hours turned to days, the water wasn't receding. By day three, hypothermia and despair were setting in. There was nothing they could do in and of their own strength. Resourcefulness and toughness weren't enough to save them. All they could do was hope and pray for rescue. Before God, we are in that position. Helpless. Though we think of ourselves as resourceful and strong, and we may even think of ourselves as miners who get through the day doing tough things. Before our holy and righteous God, we are like those nine miners, helpless to save themselves. Can you imagine what it was like for the miners during those three days? What do you think went through their minds in the flooded mine shaft? They probably thought about what would happen to their families if they died, and what they would, and what they would enjoy again if they survived. After 77 hours of huddling in the frigid darkness, praying and thinking about his loved ones, Randy Fogel was finally raised to the surface in a yellow rescue cage. His eight companions followed. All survived with strong spirits and only minor injuries. Thanks to the devoted work of their rescuers, they had stared death in the face and come back to tell the story. Now imagine their thoughts and their reactions as they reached the surface alive. 
Imagine their words and expressions as they saw their loved ones. Picture the expressions of their spouses, of their children, of their friends. Expressions that words cannot express. The amount of gratitude, the amount of rejoicing, the amount of love cannot be expressed in words. This this ought to be our response, Christians, to what God has done for us. Rejoicing like no other. In fact, our gratitude should be even greater from what he saved us from versus the miners. And I wonder where you and I would put ourselves in that story. Would you put yourself, do you really see yourself as the miner stuck at the bottom, about to die and helpless without God's saving help? Do you really see yourself there? I think oftentimes we see ourselves as the crew that comes in to help the other people out get to the surface. Where would you put yourself in that story? These miners rejoiced like no other. They were once dead, but now they're alive. This is what God does for those who intimately know that they are desperate to be saved. Those who intimately know that Jesus is the son of David. That intimately know that without Jesus coming down, the wrath of God would still be upon us. And it's only in Christ we are pleasing to him. So will you be rejoicing this Christmas? That's the question. Will you be rejoicing? Let's pray. God, so often we think of ourselves as capable. So often we think of ourselves Uh, Those of us, most of us here have decent jobs and decent money and decent parents and decent morals. And so everything around us is telling us that we're not in need of saving. So God, would you press upon not only our brains, but our hearts, that we are in need of saving. That Jesus has come as the fulfillment of of Old Testament prophecy, son of David. Lord, would you press upon our hearts that we as Christians are pleasing in your sight, that you are pleased with us right now, standing in the righteous robes of Jesus. So Lord, without you, there is no peace. Without you, we are still under your wrath, the curse of breaking your covenant. But now in Christ, who fulfilled all the covenant requirements, uh, we are pleasing in your sight. Would you press that upon our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and rejoice.
to invite you to come back tomorrow for our Christmas Eve service at 4.30. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.